Hello and welcome to the first episode of a brand new podcast from the Cash Learning Partnership. This monthly podcast will give us the opportunity to look in depth at one live debate or hot topic issue in the world of cash and voucher assistance and humanitarian response. As always, we welcome your feedback, so do let us know what you think. We are on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook at Cash Learning, or you can email us on info at cashlearning.org. Before we get into it, just a note to say that we'll be using the term Cash and Voucher Assistance and the acronym CBA, which is the umbrella term that Count uses as per the latest update of our glossary, which you can find on our website. For the first episode of this podcast, we're in Amman, Jordan, to ask, will risk aversion hold us back from realising the potential of CBA? And I'm delighted to say that here to help us answer this question today, I'm joined by Volker Schimmel, Senior Regional Cash Coordinator for UNHCR, and Nicholas Nickel, the Regional Representative for the Middle East and North Africa with CAP. Thanks for being with us today. And the reason why we're asking this question is because when CAP published its State of the World's Cash Report at the beginning of 2018, we found that perceptions of risk were the single biggest barrier to increasing the scale of cash and voucher assistance. This is despite the fact that evidence shows cash is no riskier than any other modality. But of course, cash does present very real and different risks to more traditional forms of aid. And so since then, CALP's work has been to work with our members to identify what the misperceptions of risk are that can be debunked and what the real risks are and how we can work together to mitigate them. At the same time, CALP is also undertaking a major research piece looking into the future of financial assistance, exploring a range of scenarios that could play out over the next 10 years and what this will mean for people affected by crisis and for CBA. So my first question to you both is, how do you see anxieties about CBA risk playing out in this region? Thanks, Tegan. Thanks for having me on. Um, so me, I think risk breaks down into three broad categories when it comes to CBA. It's, um, and many of them are not new, some are maybe more pressing these days in the region. Uh, first and foremost, it's the risk of um, diversion, um, being a fungible commodity. Uh, cash uh, is, is ha- and has for a long time rumored to be immediately used for illicit purposes um, or, or commodities and uses. Then there's the issue of duplication, assisting the, the same beneficiary or family several times over. And, and thirdly and lastly, um, what's a bit more pressingly nowadays in the region, the issue of anti-terrorism financing, compliance, um, also anti-money laundering issues, and uh, this, this broader theme of, uh, of compliance. And I, I like to think of it in correlation to the fragility of a country or an operation that we're in. Um, I would argue that the issue of compliance and that idea of diversion, uh, i.e. giving it to the, to the quote-unquote wrong individual, is really something that is to do with fragility of a state and, and conflict and therefore a breakdown in a, a sort of order and regulatory environment along with it. Um, in the region, I would be... Syria, Libya, Yemen, on these areas. And then the issue of diverting it for other types of needs or, um, or, or commodities, if you will, and also the issue of duplication is really much more something that kicks in in, in more mature and stable settings, in my experience. Uh, but I, I think those are also historically in, in the cash debate, 
I would argue, the three three main risks that we still see being debated these days in the region. Yeah, I think I think that's probably about right. Um, I'm curious that you use diversion as to talk about the diversion of the use of the funds rather than diversion to incorrect people. And so, do you think that means that we've largely now won that argument, and that we no longer have to convince people that it's more risky? because it could be t- stolen by people or it could be taken by the wrong person. Do you think we've got past that now? I would say yes. I think that that argument has been settled. Um, it's certainly my experience in speaking to partners, sister agencies, donors as well. Uh, there is a, an, an acceptance, not just because, as you mentioned in your introduction, that has been a unfortunate characteristic of assistance delivery since ever, but also because it, it really has been seen as something that uh, can help in certain areas to, to break um, out of a uh, sometimes very narrowly confined, or sorry, defined uh, programmatic framework if the situation changes. So um, there is, especially for practitioners on the ground, I think a, a broad acceptance. The debate really only comes up on occasion when it's about, um, you know, engaging with quote-unquote outsiders who are not in this broader space, not just cash, but humanitarian or development assistance. Uh, but otherwise, I would say this this debate has been settled, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've got, I've got an example, I think I'll talk, I'll talk about a bit later on, where I've seen it come up and rear its head again once. Um, and it was quite surprising to see it, but it fell under the banner of one of the other topics that we mentioned, which was to do with compliance. Um, and so I think that compliance question is becoming very, very prevalent, um, and especially with the fragility of the context that we have in this region. I think the only other one that I think is something that maybe I'm, I'm more concerned about than I think is, is a, a, a topic that we talk about a lot, and that's the informal financial flows that exist within MENA and they're, they're being utilised for the delivery of CDA. And I think we underestimate the risks that exist in us using those like great financial markets, which are historically what we've been using. And so we're using national infrastructure, um, but they don't often comply to standards that we try to put on ourselves um, in, in our own procedures. So yeah, I think maybe that's the only other one I've added to List for you. You're thinking here of Hawala and that kind of uh, yeah, like setup, the Hawala network, especially the Hawala networks. If you go inside inside Syria or into Iraq, I mean, in Iraq they're a bit more regulated, but I mean, certainly inside Northwest Syria they're pretty unregulated. Um, and I think we, we don't we kind of blink our eyes slightly to, to these flows, and I think the risks are probably more prevalent than we we like to think they are. There was an article published recently in the New Humanitarian, um, which was looking specifically at USAID's uh, counter-terrorism clause and how this is impacting the delivery of assistance in northeastern Nigeria. Um, one of the quotes from the article, which came from Jacob Kurtzer at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, said, these restrictions are hard to comply with for practical reasons and are also inconsistent with, in capital letters, humanitarian principles. And he goes on to say that when it comes to terrorism, there's a tendency to adopt the most restrictive language. 
I'm concerned this expectation of vetting beneficiaries could become the norm. So I wanted to ask you how this resonates with your experiences of donor behaviour in this region. Do you think it's fair to say that donors want to have it all, delivering the aid whilst also at the same time transferring risks downstream to implementing partners? Principally, I think yes, it does. Um, I think in when I read this article a couple of days ago, Calc had just convened a workshop on risk in for Syria, and we had donors and we had uh, NGOs and we had national implementing agencies as well. And the language used in this piece was very similar to the language that used in the room, um, and that was that there is risk transference happening all the way along the chain and the the difference in perception from, from what it's actually like to deliver in some of these fragile contexts and the expectations that are put on those implementing agencies, um, both by their INGO partners and then by the donors, is their, their worlds apart. Um, to give an example, I mean, these, these were closed-door workshops uh, but there was a discussion around a request that had been made to vet uh, a beneficiary and And that was what I was kind of referring to earlier about when you were talking about diversion. And so that, that conversation seems to be rearing its head again, but under the premise of anti-money laundering and anti-terror financing legislation. Um, and it was the first time I kind of heard that come back up again. And so we ended up having quite a long discussion about it being a red line on humanitarian principles. We cannot be doing that type of betting. Um, but I don't think this is a conversation anyone's really had much of so far. Um, and so it was quite interesting to know that having run this workshop very recently and then seeing an article come out for Nigeria at the same time, that this is not something specific to the region, but it's something specific to these like fragile states. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating challenge, and I agree with you. It has barely been um, initiated as, as a discussion and a conversation. I'm of two minds here, and um, also we have a, a slightly different approach as, as UNHCR just because of our work, um, which makes it a bit easier, would even argue. But uh, before that, just... I'm of two minds, just to say I'm of two minds, because on the one hand, uh, you want to uphold humanitarian principles, for sure. Uh, on the other hand, something we would, in cases, for example, interpret as civilian character of asylum. And there, there are settings where we, and by we, I mean in this case specifically in HCR, would not want to um, come in and provide um, protection assistance and other services. So it's not easy to draw a hard line and say, uh, no, no, wait with compliance, please. Come back to us later. First, we have to, to take care of humanitarian principles. So it's a, it's a bit more murky, that, that line. Um, and specifically then on our work in the region, and to answer your question, Tegan, I think the fact that we work predominantly on refugee um, and sort of transnational populations with a specific mandate to even, if you will, re-establish or recreate the identity of each and every one makes it a bit easier to answer that question because there is a process to establish really who a person is. And that is in many countries then 
amplified by the fact that there's a national government, which of course has the first obligation to ensure that there is a um, civilian character of asylum and a separation between um, civilians and, and others. So this is where uh, I think the context that Unique described in, in northwestern Syria is also very specific. I would not necessarily say that it's representative, although it's a big issue that we need to grapple with. What if it was to start to set a precedent? If we start to see this in Nigeria, we start to see it in Syria, we then say, theoretically, we start to see it applied to contexts where there are Syrians. And they, that is then has much bigger implications for, say, HCR and Jordan. What do you do in that scenario? Like, where does the conversation go there? Very true. And, you, and you're right to raise a flag here and say this could be the thin end of the wedge. But I believe that it's about having that conversation. So I, I for example, like and commend you for these uh, sessions and uh, the format and close those sessions to really start having these discussions. Because uh, in my experience, these were conversations at best between maybe our headquarters and donors and, and at, at a very abstract level. But it needs to be taken to the ground, to the front line, where it's always different in terms of regulatory environment, in terms of stability or fragility, and in terms of the trade-off between wanting to to do what you're supposed to do um, without doing harm. I mean, it, it's the repetition of um, an age-old conundrum in a, in a new space. So, uh, and 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 these old challenges were not resolved by uh, you know um, lawyers and auditors, but through actual engagement with the practitioners and uh, frontliners. Looking ahead to the future, we know that we have some unprecedented humanitarian challenges facing us. An extra 163 million climate refugees by 2050, emerging technologies whose implications we don't yet fully grasp. What do you think are the main risks that we should be grappling with right now so that we're able to face these challenges head on? If I think of a steep increase in numbers of those we need to protect and assist, then of course the first challenge is scale. And with scale comes the risk of how well are you able to control both your quality in programming CVA as well as your financial controls around it. And I would extrapolate in a way what we've seen in the region where the crises of the nature of uh, Turkey, and again referring mainly to refugee crisis with Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, where we're talking about hundreds of thousands of individuals, if not millions, uh, cannot be uh, all covered through a an individual case management process. So necessarily, uh, there was a need to first of all bring in a much more, the, much larger group of of actors, coordinate that, and then find ways of of leveraging understanding also through data and uh, automated processes uh, into decisions and actions. And, and I think the risk then, if we extrapolate from there to a much larger constituency uh, of several million by uh, 2050, as you mentioned, then those risks of making errors just increases proportionately, assuming that our organizational foundations and infrastructure will not scale to the tune of factor two, three, or multiples anyway. So, um, and, and we've seen in, in operations in the region that relying on some of these um, processes and doing more data-centric or made more data-heavy decision-making 
is it doesn't come without its its errors and therefore without its risks. So that would be certainly one to to keep an eye on. In terms of emerging technologies, I think it's always a matter of finding the right point and there's no no blueprint here, no rule of thumb that uh, I can think of, uh, of finding the right point of maturity. Uh, the, the danger is, especially with all the innovation units having sprung up in, in every organization and um, a, a fair excitement about doing work differently, uh, to, to jump the gun and to venture too far too quickly. Uh, and uh, not not to belabor the point, but uh, it's been a, an interesting debate also in this whole um, blockchain debate that we've seen in the emerge in the cash space. Uh, and uh, uh, without going into into that theme now, the the one of the applications is to possibly substitute payment processes and settlement agents. Um, but that means you insource the risk of financial controls that used to be um, at a cost outsourced before. So um, there's a lot of uh, testing and maturity needed before something can be deployed at scale. That would be my my, my only thought on emerging uh, technologies here. But but certainly it will remain a feature and, uh, and even, I would argue, a necessity given the scale that you, you project at the moment. I'm always very like, I'm very in favor of emerging technologies. I'm always very skeptical of us trying to fit a uh, square peg into a round hole um, and looking for using things and you know, using emerging technologies to fix problems that we don't necessarily need them to, to fix. And so for something like this, and when you look at you know, the point you make about scale is absolutely right. And I think that we, we fail as a sector to utilize what we already have. Um, so when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about the fact that uh, we, we massively underuse um, remittance systems and Hawala systems. And so I looked up about how much they were utilized last year. So there was $529 billion transferred globally in middle and low income countries only, which is primarily where we operate. That is an incredible volume. Um, and, and we would be a drop in the ocean if we even did half of our cash through those networks that exist. Um, and so I think with the emerging technology stuff is, is finding the right use cases and, and like you said, using it at the right maturity point because we, we are effectively testing things on people who have had their lives turned upside down. And that is not the right way to go about it. But yes, I mean, we, we, we would probably lack, lack the systems and ability to scale up to what the climate crisis is going to throw at us. Um, and if it really is people on the move and not just uh, and, and on the move over much greater distances, I think that will pose some other challenges to us as well, where probably emerging technologies have a greater power to help our work. And so that I'm thinking about the stuff around digital identity, which supports the delivery of cash again, because we almost always need someone to have some kind of an identity to be able to provide them with cash assistance. Um, I think that would be, for me, that's the, the use case of some of these technologies that where it's actually really exciting what it could potentially do. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100% on, on the, the, the fundamental premise that this has to respond to some need or some has to solve something. It shouldn't be 
uh, a use of emerging technologies for sake of using it and being excited about it. Uh, I think digital identity is a good example because you have a huge space that will continue to evolve over the next uh, decades and uh, promising um, solutions and processes on the table. But can they be applied? Can they be applied in a migration or refugee setting, in a transnational setting? And should we as uh, responders be the first ones to do so? All of these are, are sort of... Uh, yeah, questions I would throw in for caution because the risk is indeed that it's just done for um, the sake of either testing something that is not needed or because it, it misses the point of, of our work entirely um, and yeah, that'll it'll continue to be a challenge for all of us I actually, I was reading something about this recently and it's a guy from the New York Times who wrote an article called Stop Surveillance Humanitarianism hmm. and and he was arguing quite strongly against uh, using various bits of technology, mainly biometrics, um, as a means for creating digital identities uh, during the European refugee crisis. And that the, there were enough cases of errors creating significant harm to families and to individuals that we couldn't guarantee the principle of doing harm and therefore we should reconsider whether it's something that is mature enough for us to utilise it. Um, which is quite interesting because you think about using it in somewhere like Europe and you think, oh, fine, this stuff's been around for so long, we've used digital identity for so many years and still the systems in place there aren't necessarily fit for that. Um, like he used an example of a data error leading to family separation, um, which was a live case that they found in Italy. And, and if we, we can't do that in, in mature technology markets in you know, Western Europe, then what chance do we have of them in, in fragile states or in you know, huge mass migrations across, across part of Asia and Africa? And it makes me think immediately of also risk mitigation and treatment, right? I mean, if we talk about your example of, of uh, the systems of biometric systems in Europe, no, no system is perfect and never will be. So the question is, do you have the right processes and, uh, and communication and also rights and claims infrastructure built around it that allows you to course correct immediately? Because we, we've seen in, in our own systems, and I'm sure most of our um, partners and possibly even um, you know, donors and national governments have seen the same, that there are errors that happen. Now, can you uh, make sure that the person who is standing at the uh, board at night in need of some immediate assistance in order to make the transit to uh, the location that they, they have been identified for... Uh, is that is that is that error that is still in the system, which we've seen in uh, in countries in the region? Is that something that a, a person can immediately flag, come in and correct in order to make sure that person has a bed for the night or not? That that is the yardstick, I think. And if it's just a a matter of a computer says no, that is the first problem, and that must must be avoided at all costs. That's always going to be the risk with technology, right? It, it removes the human touch. The humanitarian work is often provided. I remember sat in, in, in Lebanon in like 2015 and 16, and it was a numbers game. People stopped being people, and we run that risk with, with humanitarian work. If, if we, we 
move into a world where people become numbers. Um, and that human element is something I think our humanitarian principles are grounded on. Um, and we, we do risk losing that in mm. this, this new emerging world. I agree. At the same time, there's a certain inevitability about it in large crises. Right? As I said earlier, if you have a million people and you have only um, you know, 50, 100 uh, caseworkers that are able to move around and identify needs and, and provide assistance, then that's not good enough. So you need to uh, find ways of, of working around that. And one of the ways is using numbers or information. The question is, is that the the only factor in the equation or are there other um, elements? And so um, uh, making sure everybody is able to to demand their rights, to get information they need upfront and proactively are, are key elements in mitigating that. I think the risk cannot be um, um, terminated, uh, um, but it has to be accepted and therefore other mechanisms deserve our focus things that are to do with what uh, i would i would argue the european union has addressed with the gdpr legislation for example so i think that's that would be my my emphasis for the years to come on these issues of systems and uh, and risks is to make sure that uh, everything built around those systems is fit for our humanitarian principles one of the strong messages that's come out of kelp's future financial assistance work is that we really need to start seeing cash and voucher assistance as part of the broader landscape, not only of financial flows, so we've already discussed remittances, but social protection systems, financial inclusion, and also other actors, um, especially fintech and big data companies. What risks do you see materialising from this widening landscape, and how do you think humanitarian cash actors should be preparing for them today? I think we're going to... We're going to see new players coming into the humanitarian space as these crises develop and, and as technology develops. Um, I think, you know, we see that in the discussions that are happening around the new Libra coin. We see that in discussions of, of how organizations are going to start to utilize big data better. Um, and even the notion that big data is something that that we we think we need to to, to utilize it's going to change the type of people who we operate with on the ground um, i think it's inevitable that we will start using stuff like this for targeting for delivery and with that comes a bunch of risks because at the end of the day at the moment these are very unregulated markets um, we know that when you have unregulated markets and technology changes, that then regulators try and catch up and throw out terribly drafted, conceptually useless regulation that then blocks processes and blocks innovation further down the line. Um, and that the actors who are coming to this market are driven by profit. And that changes the types of conversations that we have to have with them because we are not going to be able to apply our own principles to private sector companies who are going to be involved in the delivery of assistance, whether that's in five years, 10 years, 20 years time. Um, and I think it's probably an inevitability that, that they will have a far greater involvement. Um, and I think we need to we need to stop being so naive about 
about how we operate with those partners and thinking that they will do things because they want to work in humanitarian space. Um, I think there will always be an ulterior motive um, somewhere down the line. Yeah, it's true. The, the private company and, and profit driver is is a, is a factor that is is complicated, but. It's not. It's not a bad thing per se. I mean, ultimately, the reason why we have uh, also um, seen ever more private actors um, come into our responses is because they're agile. They're able to move quickly. They have a very uh, focused approach and business model, and and oftentimes it works. And I mean. For, for the longest time, we all of us humanitarian organizations have uh, certainly relied on the private sector for a good um, um, segment of our of our delivery and our work. So I think that um, that is is certainly a, a given. And the fact that we have now companies, you know, like the the, the Mastercards of this world or uh, fintech and and others um, pushing in is a, a priori a good thing. Because there's always ways of doing business better. Uh, the the challenge is when I, I see two main challenges on top of what you mentioned with a, with a sort of profit motive. I see the fact that oftentimes the private partners that we've engaged with are surprised and um, realize that the idea that they had coming in didn't really translate, and accordingly profits didn't materialize, and then they just walk away. So that that's not really um, a, a very good uh, model, just on the sustainability of things. And and we've seen this firsthand with um, CSR initiatives, but also small companies that were set up specifically for uh, remittances solutions and the like. And there were clear benefits for refugees in the cases that I'm thinking of in Jordan, Lebanon, and um, and it just didn't pan out. And then a lot of investment and a lot of expectations that were raised and also a p- small part of the programming budget uh, just disappeared and that's um, that's a that's a problem certainly for the people who then don't have any assistance uh, that they need so desperately and so that's certainly one one domain the other domain is what what really drives you ultimately are you providing a service that can also be applied to vulnerable populations um, or are you leveraging the as you mentioned Nick the sort of uh, regulatory vacuum and the vulnerability of people into profit those are two different things for me i think the former is 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 good because it speaks to solutions you want um certainly we want refugees asylum seekers stateless persons to participate in uh, the marketplace in national systems so that is to start with a very good direction the, the second category is more problematic when you really see somebody carving a business model out of misery and um, and using um, issues and challenges that we all face in order to promote um, their own advancement and gains ultimately. That I would have a problem with. Do you think that risk of failure uh, that you kind of mentioned in, in the first point, that you know, the private sector are kind of willing because they have resources to to take greater risks um, and, and they can afford for things to not work out? Because you know they will have plenty of projects that they try to get off the ground, and potentially they'll be able to monetize. Um, 
do you think there's, there's a there's a kind of failure on our side to acknowledge the benefits of taking some of those risks um, and actually engaging in, in potentially more costly but much more integrated development of solutions with the private sector, knowing that yes, some of them are going to work out, but that potentially the benefits of those that do happen um, could be huge. I want to say, in principle, yes, <laughs> you should, we should be more risk taking. And uh, I mean, I'm, I I like improvement, change, uh, and evolution. So I will always make that case. However, I think risk taking in a bureaucracy is a is a funny thing, right? And uh, or in a not for profit entity, put it broadly. And uh, if if with the risk taking was at least a um, comparable level of accountability as well in our organizations, I would be much more for it. Otherwise, I think it's more uh, a, a really a, a model in, in the private sector, I would argue. But um, I, I really want to come back to the, the, the fundamental assumption also of whether private, the private sector takes risks always and all the times, and especially in our space of CDA, I find that often the place that we need are very risk averse and it's sort of the feature of banks almost right you don't really want to venture into new business let alone with migrants refugees and asylum seekers and 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 that's actually where we struggle on the links with the private sector that we enter into a contract they deliver um uh, or are expected to deliver exactly on all the criteria that we hope in terms of speed innovation and cost efficiency but then suddenly, and we had this in, in, in Jordan and Lebanon and places during peak demand, you have 100 people outside your branch, which is all nicely branded and, and uh, full of posters and the like. And then what happens? The plug is pulled on the ATM machine or the doors are locked and the people who should get help don't get help just because it clashes with um, a corporate branding or with um, a, a business model that is not ready um, for or mentally prepared, even as the case may be for this, so I think it's a it's a complex interplay, and I think it would be difficult to reduce it to it's always good or it's always bad. There's um, definitely a, a line to be negotiated at all times, depending on the operational context. Also, well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. So thanks to both of you for taking the time to be on this first episode of Podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. And that concludes the first episode of our podcast. For more on the topic of current and future risks in CBA, go to our website, cashlearning.org, where there are some great blogs and other resources. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and let other people who you think might also be interested know about us. In the next episode, which will be available next month, we'll be tackling the issue of informed consent asking whether it's really possible in cash and voucher assistance. So do join us for that. And once again, thanks for listening.